I think it's it's really hard to understand how companies like Exxon can, how the board of Exxon can be um, so deluded, but you only have to show them the share price chart of the last decade. They have massively, massively failed their fiduciary duty. We are also, 48% of the world's lithium came from Australia. We are beautifully positioned, as always, we are the lucky country. We're beautifully positioned to drive and benefit and lead world investment in mining and decarbonisation. We have two of the five biggest green hydrogen projects in the world proposed in Australia. Just get the government, the federal government out of the way and let finance and corporate and the people and the scientists of Australia and the engineers of Australia drive the transformation and show what Australia really can do to be a world leader. So Tim, I, mean, I know you were going to, to mention something um, something about something you read. So feel free to take it away. Well, you mentioned the uh, fact that you get a lot of rejections for podcast invitations. And uh, that was in part why uh, I, my work as uh, working in a public interest think tank was actually um, set up a decade ago, funded by some Australian philanthropists who um, for political uh, in, uh, purposes don't want to be named. Um, I know who they are and I know what their purpose is. I know they are critically engaged on the climate science, but they're also aware of the massive vested interest in Australia and the political and financial impacts if they speak out too widely. And by that, I mean being hit with tax audits and other sort of stuff that supposedly wouldn't happen in a democracy that Australia used to represent. Um, so I'm really privileged in that having worked in finance for 20 plus years, uh, at one point I was managing director, head of equity research at Citigroup. Uh, I was at Citi for 17 years at the time, it was the biggest bank in the world. So I understand financial markets. I have a very markets orientation. Um, I, I'm loathe, particularly in the current election to say that's right wing. I think climate is not a political position. It is a statement of fact. It's a statement of science. And um, Australia's democracy, I think, is actually being threatened. So as you touched on um, before we started this podcast, the election to me is critically important. And there was an article in The Guardian this morning talking about how the one of the top scientists, climate scientists in Australia, has um, just resigned, retired from the CSIRO, and he's come out and admitted that he has been muzzled by the federal government and by the CSIRO. Now, 20 years ago, the CSIRO was a bastion of brilliant science, public interest science, funded by the government, funded by taxpayers, with a world-renowned and they have just been bastardised and corporatized. And Professor um, Cumdy, I think his name is, uh, came out and just said, look, they now have a profit orientation. They are a, a major consulting organisation. That's not the purpose of public interest funding. And I saw that a decade ago when I met the head of Jizera, which is an offshoot of the CSIRO, and uh, I asked for his business or he gave me his business card and I turned it over and Origins 
Origin Energy's logo was on it. I go, hang on, I thought you worked for the CSIRO. I thought you worked for the federal government. He goes, oh, I do. But and I go, well, how? there's no but. How can you have a corporate logo of a gas company on your business card? And he goes, oh, well, they fund half of my work. Okay, so you're captured by the um, fossil fuel industry. He goes, well, oh, we still stand by the ethics of the CSRO. I go, look, I've been an investment banker. I've been on the commitments committee of the biggest bank in the world. I know all about conflicts of interest and you have a massive conflict of interest, just like I did for my 20 years career at Citigroup. When you work for the investing um, side of the bank, and then you also work for the investment bank who's bringing corporate deals. Conflicts of interest are ripe in corporates and finance, or sorry, in, in the big global financial industry. But mm. for CSIRO to be so compromised, I mean, it shows how far our democracy has gone backwards and the regulatory capture of the incumbent fossil fuel industry. So I've actually deliberately started referencing the fact that Australia is a petro state and we're one of the four largest fossil fuel exporters in the world. And someone picked me up over the weekend and said, oh, but, but petro states, we import our oil. We're not quite a petro state, but petro state 20 years ago talked about oil, but Australia is the biggest exporter of LNG in the world. We're the biggest exporter by a country mile of coking coal in the world. We're the second biggest exporter of thermal coal in the world. And we have entire regulatory capture of our federal government, particularly our federal government. And so for many decades, I've always wondered why Australia had three tiers of government. Now, 30 years later, I understand, well, when one has been totally captured, the other two tiers are still struggling to maintain the positive direction. And uh, I think at the moment, this federal election is all about trying to limit and ideally reverse some of the regulatory yeah. capture by that fossil mm -hmm. fuel mafia. So I say that very deliberately, provocatively, yeah. We are, as a country, captured by the fossil fuel mafia. We are right up there with Saudi Arabia and Russia, and we're ahead of America in terms of our position as a global laggard in terms of the climate science and a global laggard in terms of accepting the existential threat that faces the world because we are such a massive fossil fuel exporter. And the Morrison government uses an absolutely trite bogan slogan, which is, oh, it doesn't matter what Australia does, we're only 1.3% of the population, we're a world population, we're only 1.5% of world emissions. That is bogus because we're the third largest fossil fuel exporter in the world. We're right up there with the climate criminals. So anyway, that's, that's my little rant to start. <laughs> no, you have to start the morning with Iran to get it out of the system. Um, no, as you were saying, Tim, uh, you know, in terms of uh, Australia's relative position in the climate crisis, obviously, if you look at our annual emissions, I think, uh, or cumulative annual emissions, I think it's around 1.1% as per our world data. Um, and then also, if you look at our exports, iron ore, which is, I think, contributes to 7% of global emissions, where the one of the biggest exporters of iron ore, and like you said, liquid nitric, natural gas and so on. And I think, I think uh, our position is a global leader, especially as a developing economy. We have that moral obligation to sort of 
lift the burden on maybe developing countries that are behind that like the infrastructure that Australia has. And so that's even more incentive for us to move forward. And that's why Australia's upcoming federal election is so critical, um, especially in the wake of abysmal climate policy. But before we get into that, I think it would be fascinating to maybe zoom out a bit and to get a, a, a feel for the entire landscape in terms of climate and finance. And as I mentioned before, Tim, before we started, there's these particular notions and, and caricatures of what finance represents. Um, this is often represented by uh, money-hungry investment bankers that are trying to make a buck at whatever the cost. Um, and they may be financing fossil fuel projects. This is the sort of stereotype maybe. But given climate finance is your particular area of expertise, would you be able to provide an overview of that in terms of what is currently going on in finance with reference to, to uh, climate change? Yeah, I, I think the stereotype you just detailed is spot on. Uh, having worked in the biggest bank in the world, having been a managing director for 20 years um, in, in that institution, that, that stereotype is spot on. And let me clarify that because ultimately uh, what's become really cognizant to me over the last decade working in the public interest think tank area, it's completely uh, con uh, different to working in finance, but finance is not immoral, it's amoral. It's, it's actually legislated that the sole purpose test of finance applies. And so I would distinguish between finance, corporations, and the public interest or community or the wider perspective of what our government is meant to represent, um, the sole purpose test is the legally defining laws or, and parameters in which the finance institutions work. That is that they must maximise the returns, the risk-adjusted returns to investors now, the time frame is absent. It really should be they must maximise the risk-adjusted returns over the long term. But And by that, I'm, I'm narrowing into the investing sector. So finance has insurance, it has banks, and it has investors. So for investors, they have a fiduciary duty to their clients, to all of the um, owners of superannuation, which is every worker in Australia, every retiree in Australia has superannuation. So that is a legal protection. They have an obligation to maximise the risk-adjusted returns. I would emphasise over the long term because pension money is a 40-year, 50-year investment. And so it's not about maximising returns this week or next week, but the financial markets, the equity markets that I worked in are myopically short term, which is why I've just sort of narrowed it in. We have to invest for the long term. And so we have to get away from the equity market fixation with short term returns. Now, a key aspect of what I'm talking about in the legislation references is risk adjusted returns we must be aware of key financial risks. Now, there is no economy in an unlivable planet. Now, I've already just strayed into the moral and ethics aspect of what you want to discuss, but that's a reality. There is no economy. All right? Barnaby Joyce talks about the cost of action is too high. I mean, it's just crap. The cost of inaction is too high. 
The insurance sector came out last month and said, look, we are in the middle of a breakdown of the Australian insurance market. It is market failure. It is a collapse of the insurance industry because you can't insure properties against extreme weather events that are unpredictable, more extreme and more frequent. And so ultimately, finance is amoral. And so trying to pretend that it's going to be a moral focus, it's not. Um, so therefore, we need to then differentiate. Corporates have a um, stakeholder engagement, a stakeholder representation, a wider parameter. Now, that normally, do, it's because they don't have the sole purpose test that applies to finance. But in Australia, finance is so big, it's disproportionate to the size of the global economy and other countries. And so the corporates are guided by the financial institutions. They talk to the investors daily, the CEO, the board, and so on. So the corporate focus, which is about stakeholders, in other words, you maximize the value of a company in the long term by representing fairly all stakeholders where, okay, maybe the shareholder is the number one stakeholder, but staff are a key stakeholder. Government is a key stakeholder. You've got to take into account your supply chain, your customers, your competitors, and you've got to invest for the long term. You've got to protect your brand, if only to maximize the value of the company over the long term. And then the government's meant to provide the regulatory framework within which finance and corporates work. And that regulatory framework should represent the environment and the people of Australia, the people of the democracy that vote for the government. But when corporates can effectively buy the government, then you've got an absolute collapse in the structure of democracy, the integrity and the long-term viability of it. So oh, again, that's, that's a long-winded answer to say, look, finance is a very, very powerful institution, group of institutions. I do, I am very optimistic about the climate science being solvable just because of the amount of money in the global financial system. But ultimately, it does require a global response to a global problem. And that requires a regulatory framework to actually direct the money to solving the problem. Once you get that, that regulatory framework, corporates and finance can galvanize unbelievable amounts of capital to solve the problem, and they will. So therefore, when I talk to my climate science friends, climate scientists, they are absolutely warning about the extreme nature of this, the building, the cascading effects, and they're increasingly pessimistic, whereas I'm optimistic because ultimately I know we can solve the problem. The question is, can we solve it fast enough to actually offset some of the extreme weather events? Absolutely. So, so Tim, I'll go ahead and try to summarise and pack everything together. Um, so, I mean, to start off, you were mentioning how that stereotype of the the hungry, uh, the money hungry investment banker may be particularly true. Uh, 
But when we look at the ultimate goal of finance, it's actually something that is amoral, meaning to say that it's unconcerned with the moral obligation and they're just doing what will be in the best interest of shareholders in terms of maximizing risk-adjusted uh, risk, risk adjusted returns. And uh, when we look at uh, the cost of inaction versus action, it is very, very clear that the cost of inaction is that there will be no planet to live on compared to action, which is perhaps there may be a big, a big adjustment period, a big transitional period to a new way of living, the, living. But nevertheless, that is ultimately a better option. And when you look at the insurance companies, and it's funny you mentioned that because when we track the history in terms of which industries were moving first, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Tim, you, you, you have a better idea than I will, but I believe insurance companies were one of the first movers in terms of recognizing climate change as a key, uh, key issue, given the increasing insurance premiums and increasing insurance costs related to natural disasters, floods. And so you're mentioning how insurance is already adjusting for what is going, what is currently happening. And ultimately finance is a powerful group of institutions. And if we have that regulatory framework, if we have government uh, or if we have uh, those uh, issues legislated on, ultimately finance can be a huge driver for change. Did I, did I have, is that a, would you, did I miss anything there? Is there anything you would add to that? No, that's, that's a good summary. Um, so I guess going on to the next question then is that given the IPCC, so the IPCC has been, I think the first report was in 1987. Um, and I think in 1995, the first, I think that was one of the first moments where scientists, climate scientists say that there's a discernible impact that humans are being made. So it's since 1995 that we've known of this. And yet, um, given vested interests, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, things have been a lot slower than they normally have. Um, but how has the finance industry been moving to reflect the growing concern as every year, every seven years, the IPCC report has been growing starker and starker? How has that been reflected in the finance industry and in terms of financial flows and movements? Yeah, it's... It's been really interesting. I mean, we saw the Paris Agreement come through 2015, 2016, it was ratified. And then we saw almost nothing for five years. And so obviously the scientists, we, sorry, we saw absolutely extreme evidence that the scientists were conservative. And we've seen the extreme weather events becoming more extreme and more frequent, but we didn't see the policy response that was critically needed. And at the end of the day, we don't live in a world, thank God, that has a global government. We live in, um, in Australia in a democracy, okay, an eroded democracy, but India, America, Europe, they're still democracies, um, but they're independent and they're self-serving. And so ultimately, it, you do have this political conundrum where you're expecting a global response to a global problem, and yet, individually nations work in their own national interests. So the framework has been really lacking. It's been divisive. Who's gonna go first? Who's gonna wear the cost? And maybe a decade ago, that was a really legitimate position because I mean, I was asked, well, is there a first mover advantage or disadvantage? Now, 
corporates and finance, there's usually a first mover advantage. But when you're talking about the rampant technology innovation, the cost of research and development, the rampant deflation of renewables, there's actually a legitimate argument to say there was a first mover disadvantage. So I really take my hat off to Angela Merkel. Um, I wish she was still the governor or the chancellor of, of Germany, because for 20 years, she has allowed Germany to be a world leader in copying the common but differentiated responsibilities of the Paris Agreement, taking on the chin the cost that the developed world should take to, as you said, buy the developing nations time to transition their economies. Uh, the common but differentiated responsibilities, I think Germany really, really led that under Angela Merkel. And you see that in the massive cost that the German consumer is worn from being a first mover in embracing renewable energy. Now, fast forward to 2021, that is far less an issue. It is absolutely a given that renewable energy is the low cost source of new energy for the world in most markets and most particularly Australia, America, India, it's just a given, you know, UK for offshore wind, they are the low cost sources. Okay, put aside the fact it's zero emissions, put aside there is no health consequences, air pollution, particulate pollution, let's just talk economics. The economic case is crystal clear. And so I actually was really bullish in going into COP21 that after having faffed around and lost five years, all of a sudden we were starting to see the galvanizing of the COP26 Conference of the Parties to getting a global treaty. And ultimately, a lot of that came down to the fact that you no longer had a fruit loop in, in the um, presidency in the White House, and you actually had President Biden working, talking to China, okay, he still attacks China as their key trade competitor as, I mean, the geopolitics of it are difficult, but ultimately they came together on climate, they came together on methane emissions, and that brought a galvanizing influence where America strong-armed Japan and Korea, they tried to strong-arm Australia and failed, uh, but at the end of the day, we saw Europe leading, we saw America really start to realise how far behind the eight ball and under President Biden start to um, pick up the baton. And they then brought Japan and Korea in. So you're talking major economies. And then China's been leading this for a decade, in my view. Don't put aside the politics, just self-interest. They want to be the world number one power. They've realized decarbonized industries of the future are that opportunity. And so therefore they are absolutely in a technology race and they're winning it. And I think America under Biden has started to realize that. So at the end of the day, COP26 saw a galvanizing effort. So to come to your question, the most powerful aspect of COP26 was when the global finance for Global Alliance for Financial Alliance for Net Zero under Mark Carney's leadership saw a pledge not to two degrees, but to 1.5 degrees. And we saw collective assets under management of the Global fin Alliance for fin Financial Alliance for Net Zero Emissions of $130 trillion of capital. Now, I would not want to stand 
on the other side of a bet against $130 trillion of capital pledging 1.5 degrees. Now, 1.5 degrees, most scientists will tell you, is almost impossible. But finance has actually pledged to act in alignment with 1.5 degrees. If they even half honour that pledge, get out of the way. The capital flows are going to be extreme. Now, the science is telling us they have to be extreme because the science is showing the weather is getting more extreme and more frequent weather events of unprecedented nature. So we have to act, but I, I think we've got that tension there. And so we're starting to see the policy landscape merge with the technology and merge with the finance to actually galvanize a global technology race to the top. Mm. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating. And I think, uh, I think you wrote an article, Tim, that I was reading about earlier, with regards to those specific developments that China was making in terms of leading uh, decarbonization. It's just absolutely fascinating, because within our modern media cycles, I think uh, that is not something that you often hear, rather the inverse, you hear something along the lines of that, we should not uh, have to decarbonize as Australians or maybe any other developing country, maybe America or uh, the UK, because we are not, uh, you know, emitting uh, our total annual emissions is minuscule compared to India and China. Whereas when you look at the policy that coming through it, just based on your article, it seems like it seems absolutely mental because they're going nuts and investing a lot of money and a lot of resources into that decarbonization effort. And I think, uh, like you said, a, a big reason is the cost. Um, and so I think this would be a really good time to focus on the economic case for, for renewables. And uh, being someone that comes from a business background, being someone that's raised in a business environment, studying a business degree, I think there's the, the language of business is something that comes quite naturally to me if I if I could slip into that and I think uh, the environmental aspect if anyone of a business mindset maybe traditionally maybe not anymore but traditionally you would think that business and environment is not a positive sum game is that if you invest in renewables it's zero sum we are losing a stake or shrinking the pie as uh, Alex Edmonds uh, one of the guests that we had on our podcast said it's not uh, it's not positive sum it's zero sum but i wanted to get an uh, get your perspective on uh, would you be able to outline the economic uh, or the business case for renewables and do you see it as a zero sum game or do you see it as positive sum yeah that's it's a really good framing of the issue and for a long time um the reality is we knew renewables were necessary, but you couldn't argue the economic case. Like a decade ago, when I actually started working in the public interest think tank space, renewables were aspirational, but they were the expensive option. They're not today. And so let me maybe for once be brief, and I'll just focus on one chart that I've used repeatedly now for a decade. Um, when I was running a global technology fund, it was a clean tech fund looking to invest in the future technologies. You know, there's where there's risk, there's opportunity, let's invest in the global opportunities. And one of my favorite energy companies in the world back a decade ago was Next Era Energy of Florida, America. 
Now, fast forward a decade, it's the best performing utility in the world. It is the largest utility in America. It's the biggest investor in renewables in the world. Like it spends $15 billion a year, US, of investments in infrastructure every year. It's the biggest infrastructure investor in America, actually. Um, so today it's crystal clear. So I use a chart, which is the 10-year performance of next era energy versus Exxon versus the standard uh, S&P 500. So talk about the market. Next year energy is up 400-odd percent, 450% in a decade. Exceptional performance. The market's up 200%. So compare that to the biggest fossil fuel dinosaur in the world, Exxon, the biggest climate science denying Luddite in the world. That's Exxon. Okay, we've got Woodside, we've got Santos, we've got plenty of Luddites and dinosaurs in Australia, but let's pick on America. Exxon's shares are flatlining in a decade. So they've massively underperformed for a decade, the US market. They've massively underperformed their competitor in the form of zero emissions renewable energy, the, the biggest investor in America in renewables for the last 20 years. And, and next year it has held that mantle now for 20 years. So I sort of got on a decade ago. We then grappled with all next year energy is also one of the biggest nuclear power companies in America. Um, so we, at the end of the day, when you're talking morality, do you want nuclear in your portfolio? But what they were doing was buying existing nuclear power plants and existing coal-fired power plants, running them into the ground safely and then using all the cash flow from that to reinvest in the solutions of the future. And they've done that for 20 years in a row and the stock market loves them. So you don't need to go past that one chart to say, well, the best performing utility in America versus the biggest fossil fuel company in America, one's massively consistently outperformed, one's consistently massively underperformed. At the end of the day, put morality aside, Investors need to invest with the sole purpose test of maximizing the risk-adjusted returns. Well, that chart summarizes everything. Now, you could argue, and I always put a caveat now in the last year, Exxon has outperformed in the last 12 months. It's up 50%. Next year, energy is only up 10%. The market's up 10%. So you've got to realize there are commodity cycles and the oil price has doubled, the LNG price has gone up tenfold in a deck in a year. And so short term, yes, Exxon has outperformed. And that sort of eroded a little bit the um, clarity of the vision. But as soon as you look at on one decade perspective, next year energy has massively consistently outperformed and even better on a risk adjusted basis, the volatility of Exxon's gone up. So investors can look at that and go, well, there is no fiduciary um, complexity here. My moral obligation is to, do, is to invest as a fiduciary and the fiduciary says, I want to maximize my risk adjusted returns. I'm betting on renewable energy. It is the obvious choice. Absolutely. And Tim, a quick follow-up on that. I think, uh, I think in terms of the economics of renewables, this is something I, I would say uh, most people, including myself, are very unfamiliar with. And I think the moral case is what the grounds have been fighting on for a very long time. But 
is it could it be is the reason that the economics as you said the pricing has dropped um renewables are upticking in its use um, and its demand um, but is another reason that uh, uh, companies like exxon mobil and all other i guess oil mining giants uh, that their trajectory is not as uh, spectacular as perhaps renewables um, is it a reason because uh, ultimately they will need to be stopped at some point of time is that does that come into does that come into a factor because as someone that has studied finance my understanding is that we when you take a long-term view you have to look at the future returns and if there's a cutoff date of those future returns that means that the valuation or the growth of that company will shrink is there's is that a factor and what other factors could be playing into that economic equation yeah that's it, that's spot on. Um, when I started a decade ago as in the public interest area, we referenced stranded assets because what you've just put forward is the, is, um, the issue of stranded assets. I'm buying a company like Woodside today that's valuable, it's making really good profits some of the time, uh, but its entire future is... Uh, threatened, I mean, it's a dinosaur, it will go to zero if we're to have a livable planet, or it will have to transform fundamentally. Now, a decade ago, you had the choice as a board, you could fundamentally embrace the science and you could position the company to transform, or you could bullshit your way through the next decade, retire with all your um, ill-gotten gains and leave the problem to the next generation. Now, that's what Woodside and Exxon decided to do. They'll milk it, they'll push the externalities. So finances and economics is all about externalise the cost and internalise the profits. And carbon dioxide emissions are a key global externality in the financial system. And they were, it was a decade ago. So what you described is a evaluation by the board that, sure, we will need to at some point deal with the climate science, but while we can get away with being a polluter, let's pollute and let's kick the can down the road and leave it to someone else, push the cost onto the community, and we maximise our returns to our investors. Now, to me, that's a abrogation of the fiduciary duty of the board not to look at the long term. The board is there to actually evaluate and position the company to maximise the long term strategy of the company. And they failed categorically. But why I can say that, because A, there is no economy in an unlivable planet. B, the whole bullshit that gas is a transition fuel, the, the German economics minister this year actually said that the gas as a bridge fuel theme has collapsed. The bridge has collapsed. It does not reconcile with the reality of 2022. Now, the other aspect that's become really, really clear is the pricing in of that externality. And the carbon price has become toxic in Australia thanks to the captured nature of our political system, the fossil fuel mafia that I referenced. But in Europe, they have a carbon price. Now, it took them 15 years to get the carbon price, the emissions trading scheme, to be effective. For a long time, it meandered along at 5 or 10 euros a tonne. Today, it's 83 euros a tonne. It's up. 15-fold in two, three, four years. It's up 10-fold in a year. So the financial markets and the corporates and the governments have finally meshed with the technology and the climate science, and the whole of Europe has a carbon price. 
Now, we started to hear about the carbon border adjustment mechanism two years ago. In other words, the European corporates realize they have no, pro no choice. They have to deal with the carbon price. The policy is not going away. So they want to level the playing field and they want to inflict the same rules onto every other corporate so that they can compete in a fair market. That's fine. Right? That's a good outcome. So Australia can't abuse Europe's carbon price and be a carbon fuel laggard. But what changed last year is, again, China. Now, the Western perspective, the Australian perspective, China is the enemy. I mean, that's just when you talk about economics, China is our number one trade partner. Put aside the politics, economics is we have to actually work with China because they're our number one trade partner. They're also the number one investor in the solutions, the zero emission solutions we desperately need. They're the number one supplier of solar modules in the world and have been for a decade. So China, put aside the politicization of the Australian media, thanks to Murdoch, um, and get down to the economic reality. You've got a situation where China now runs the largest national ETS in the world, an ETS emissions trading scheme that's four times bigger than Europe's. And China is actually driving its economy, its decarbonisation of its economy. And the West is failing to understand how fast China is moving. And so whenever I talk about China being a world leader in all these industries of the future, it's about self-interest. They're doing it because the massive investments opportunity that you're driving like this is a two three four trillion dollar a year investment opportunity globally they're doing it for trade purposes they want to dominate the trade industries of the future they're doing it for technology dominance they want to dominate the technologies of the future and they want to surplus america as an economy well no better than to control the industries of the future and let America and Australia dominate the industries of the past, and then China just naturally becomes a world superpower. So it's actually self-interest. But when you look at the investment, the exports, the technology, and the employment rationale, it's all about economics. This is uh, pulling me in two directions, Tim. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. But what's pulling me in two directions is that my uh, climate activist activism side of me is saying that the reason that um, ExxonMobil and all these other fossil fuel giant, giants and corporations have been not acting is because they've been captured by, captured by uh, a profit motive. Whereas on the other hand, what I'm hearing you say is that ultimately if uh, people within ExxonMobil um, and other uh, uh, mining dinosaurs or big corporations were to look at the true mode, the true reason of finance, which is to have a fiduciary duty that that is to say to serve the best interests of their shareholders. They would look at climate change. They would look at all these other alternatives that are coming because that is within the best interests. And yet they've not done that. So it seems like what I'm gathering from you, Tim, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, these large companies that are that are not transitioning are failing their fiduciary duty. And in that sense, they are failing the the ultimate motive of finance, which is which is slightly contradictory to me because I would say that, like I said, the activist side to me would say that profit is driving it. And yet, if it was truly that was the case, then renewables would be first. Is, do, do you, does that make sense, that tension? Yeah, Xavier, I think it's, it's really 
hard to understand how companies like Exxon can, how the board of Exxon can be um, so deluded, but you only have to show them the share price chart of the last decade. They have massively, massively failed their fiduciary duty. Now, at the end of the day, there's a, a term called groupthink. They have started to believe their own They've been so firmly fixated on climate science denialism now for 20 or 30 years. Like Exxon actually, Exxon scientists 40 years ago were writing about the climate science issue 40 years ago. They were a world leader 40 years ago. And then they got captured by, okay, how do we maximize our returns? We maximize them by externalizing the problem. And then they've just effectively bullshitted themselves and thought that their regulatory capture is so powerful they can keep doing this but it's a bit like the Kodak moment at the end of the day the board has failed to understand the seismic shift that is happening and so it's people like Larry Fink like most environmentalists hate Larry Fink the founder and chair of BlackRock I actually think he's a critical enabler of a livable planet why because he's motivated by the profit motive and when he runs $10 trillion, $10 trillion of self-interest and the opportunity for him to manage trillions of dollars of more capital globally by solving this problem, he's totally motivated by self-interest. As Paul Keating says, you always know what horse to back. It's the self-interest. Larry Fink is, now I've just in one respect complimented him, in another hand, um, lambasted him, but we I've written about Larry Fink and he has said the self-interest of BlackRock, he doesn't put it that way, he talks about this being a multi-trillion dollar opportunity. The IEA, the International Energy Agency, talks about it being a hundred trillion dollar investment opportunity by 2050 globally. Larry Fink wants a small slice, two, three, four, five percent of that hundred trillion dollars. So it's about self-interest. So why do I mention BlackRock when you ask about Exxon? because BlackRock last year voted against the Exxon board. Now that's unprecedented that the biggest institution in the world, a $10 trillion giant voted against the incumbent board when BlackRock actually man manages money for Exxon. And so those two have been enmeshed for many, many decades in self-interest and alignment of interest. And all of a sudden BlackRock's calling them out. Why? Larry Fink just looked at the share price chart and said, you, you guys are destroying my shareholder value. And so groupthink, at the end of the day, boards get captured by groupthink. If you were a renewable energy expert at BP beyond petroleum, right, BP 20 years ago, you were 1% of the assets of the company. 99% of the company at BP 20 years ago was banking on you failing. And so the power of that incumbency meant that anyone who was any good at BP gave up and left. Now, Bernard Looney's trying to turn the Titanic at BP and he's doing a bloody good job, but he's really going against the entrenched mindset. So when he first got appointed two years ago as CEO of BP, the first thing he did was he sacked half of the top 250 executives. He needed to break the entrenched group think. Now, will he succeed? I don't know, he'll die trying. And that's all I care about because he's deploying tens of billions of dollars of investment. And he sort of illustrates how these dinosaurs could survive and transfer, transform, but they're not prospering. 
The ones that are prospering are the ones that are embracing the opportunity wholeheartedly. For every dollar that BP spends on renewables, they're spending $5 on fossil fuels, on gas, right? Methane, gas. Well, five to one says BP is going to fail. Now, it was 10 to one, and before that, it was like 100 to one in the space of three years. So BP is moving very, very rapidly, but I'd rather spend 100 cents of every dollar on the solution, not one in five cents on the dollar, or sorry, one in five cents on the solution and four on five betting you're going to fail. So that's the ultimate conflict in these incumbent industries. And so I, I yeah. talk about dinosaurs, like Exxon is a dinosaur. It will have to die. It's not, it's too late to transform. It's a hundred percent betting on the world's economy failing on climate science failing to be resolved. It's betting on an unlivable planet. Whereas BP's hmm. trying desperately to change and next year they had that debate a decade ago, the science won and they've embraced the opportunity. So we need transformation of the incumbent industry, but some of them just have to die. They're dinosaurs. It's, it's, that was an absolutely fascinating take on the what, what I don't often see, which is how cognitive bias is ultimately the root of a lot of these failings to enact, uh, to act on climate initiatives. Um, and I think uh, referencing Matthew Syed, one of my favorite authors, he often talks about group uh, diversity or cognitive diversity and that when you have challenging opinions in the same room, that is ultimately where the best idea flourishes. Because if you have homophily or when there's a group of people, the wisdom of crowds, if they're all conforming, their ideas are all conforming with each other, ultimately you're going to get a bad result because although it feels good to agree with each other, that's not that, that's not ultimately where the best idea wins. That's who has the best, but who, that's to say, who has the best idea? Well, it doesn't matter because we're just going to agree with what we all think. Um, and I think this is a really good place to transition to the Australian election. Um, and I think there's multiple elections coming up. I think Brazil is going to have an election this year, which will be critical given their biodiversity. Um, but particularly in Australia, I think this, this segment, we can sort of uh, focus on uh, politics um, and particularly in Australia and people can extrapolate and use the insights here uh, when uh, looking at their own countries. But um, I just wanted to look at very quickly some key figures in terms of carbon emission reduction. So the Liberal Party, have vowed to have a 26 to 28% reduction of carbon by 2030. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Tim. I believe this is correct. Um, Labor yep. Party is doing a 43% reduction and they have a renewable energy plan. And I think the Greens Party is has a 74% reduction. And I think the Greens are the sole party in which meets with uh, the global uh, trajectory in terms of meeting uh, 2020, 30 targets. Um, so how do you think this election will impact uh, climate change and maybe climate finance as well. What are your thoughts? Yeah, Xavier, you, I'm hoping you left out an absolutely key constituent, and that is the independents. Ah, yes, so, that's right. So the independents that I'm working with, and, and there are so many, it's beautiful to see, um, they have, most of them have climate as one of their top number one policy mm -hmm. or climate and energy is in the top four. And most of them have set at least 50% emissions reduction by 2030 as their target. So wow. not as extreme as the Greens. The Greens are aligned with science, but the reality is we have a decade of delay in Australia. So 
you can't just ignore the fact we've lost a decade yep. of momentum. Um, but I'd also emphasize when the Liberals talk about a 26% target, they have no roadmap, they have no intention to deliver on it. They actively use um, subsidies to fossil fuels to undermine the target. And by the way, they cherry pick the date. They talk about 20, 2005 to 2030. So 2005 was Australia's all time record high emissions. Every other country talks about 2000 or um, 1990 as the base year. Australia under the LNP has cherry picked the starting point. They picked the worst possible year. Oh my God. And that, I mean, at the end of the day, they've done nothing. They've done a 1% reduction in their time in office. So the idea that they're doing 26%, I mean, it's statistics um, that Angus Taylor and Scott Morrison are great at. It's a bit like Trump holding the chart upside down. Um, it's that stupid. But let's talk about the science. The science requires what the Greens are asking for. The question is, can we deliver on it in eight years, given a decade of delay? Do we have the right policy framework, the right signal? The reality is we probably still could do it, but it would come at a cost. Uh, Saul Griffin, uh, I think, is trying to really reframe the whole debate. Talk about electrifying everything. Don't talk about a cost. Talk about an investment. It's an investment in a $5,000 a year benefit to every family in Australia. Who would not vote for that? I mean, okay, most of the climate independents are working with Saul Griffith. It's brilliant to hear. Um, I was just with Nicolette Buller last week and Saul Griffin was there talking about electrify everything, the $5,000 a year benefit. So rather than Barnaby Joyce, the cost of inaction is too high. I probably get his bogan slogan wrong. Um, it's about the investment opportunity. It's not a cost, it's an investment. We invest in our future. We invest in decarbonisation. We invest in a lower energy system. We invest in energy security and energy independence. And we invest in getting away from the fossil fuel mafia. And so ultimately, the independence, I am hoping, will be the decisive factor in this election. And so the independence, and in other words, the breakdown of the two-party system is critical because the LNP has been totally captured by the fossil fuel industry. And so the moderates have all fled the LNP. I'm hoping they're flying, fleeing, and I'm pretty sure they are, to the independence. So the independence will hold the, whoever, whichever government, whichever party has the, the balance of power, they will drive climate action, just like they'll drive integrity and a federal ICAC and freedom of media and donation reform, because all of that feeds into restoring our democracy. So the democracy of Australia is actually serving the people of Australia, not the fossil fuel mafia. And so ultimately that then allows a rampant opportunity. So maybe we just finish on a really positive point you mentioned Australia is a global laggard, and I agree with you, but I actually was debating with Keith Pitt, the resources minister, about a year ago down in Canberra, and he said, oh, but Tim, haven't you regularly said Australia is a world leader? Why are you now saying to this committee that we're a world laggard? And I go, well, you are a world laggard. Your government is a world laggard. You're making Australia a world laggard. But the scientists, the engineers, the financiers, and the corporates of Australia, and the people of Australia have demonstrated Australia is also a world leader. You can have the two. You've got a government captured by the fossil fuel industry. You've got a government sponsored at COP26 by Santos. Like, I mean, how obscene is that? That the 
Australian booth is sponsored by Santos and the CEO of Santos is standing next to the Prime Minister of Australia at COP26, like a dinosaur, a fossil fuel mafia showing his regulatory capture. But let's talk about Dr. Martin Green, the um, scientist who developed the solar module technology that has transformed the world energy and give markets, has transformed for 40 years. The University of New South Wales has transformed Sorry, I'm just checking his New South Wales or Sydney. Anyway, uh, Sydney Institution. Um, Dr. Philip Greed has done a brilliant job of driving science. It shows how Australia can drive the world. We have the highest uptake of rooftop solar in the world. The so. Rooftop solar is an investment by the people of Australia, by the mm. families of Australia, to take the power away from the fossil fuel industry and to protect themselves, self-generate. And that shows Australia has the highest penetration in the world, and that shows the power of money, the power of the people of Australia, the power of Australia to lead the world. We get the right government in place. We get the laggards out of the way and then stand back, let finance corporate and the people of Australia drive Australia to being a world renewable energy superpower. And I'll throw in a world mining superpower because too often people talk about the mining industry. It's the fossil fuel industry that's the problem, not the mining industry of Australia. Australia is the world's largest producer of lithium. You mentioned we're the world's largest exporter of iron ore. We should be exporting green iron, 100%. But we are also, 48% of the world's lithium came from Australia. We are beautifully positioned, as always, we are the lucky country. We're beautifully positioned to drive and benefit and lead world investment in mining and decarbonisation. We have two of the five biggest green hydrogen projects in the world proposed in Australia. Just get the government, the federal government out of the way and let finance and corporate and the people and the scientists of Australia and the engineers of Australia drive the transformation and show what Australia really can do to be a world leader. And that to me is a really positive solution. And Australia is set to boom if we just had the federal government out of the way. Absolutely. And I think it goes back to that age old statement is that we're, we're in our own way in that sense in when it comes to renewables, when it comes to a more sustainable future. Well, I think, Tim, just to finish and wrap up everything, I think uh, individuals watching this will probably be very motivated, but wondering how they can contribute uh, to a more positive future. And I think one of the ways is to vote obviously, but uh, I, some other ways I've been looking at is that uh, you can change your superannuation and change your commercial banks to more green banks, such as the Bank of Australia. And I wanted to get your take on what you think, whether you think an action like this is something that has tangible impact and is something that we can do to change for a more sustainable future to vote with our money, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. Voting, obviously, in the near term is absolutely key. I mean, as Nicolette Bullers, my, my, um, for the Bradfield electorate, my, uh, my preferred candidate, she, her, her slogan is I mean, vote like your, your life depends on it. It does. Um, so voting is absolutely important. Preferencing is absolutely important. We've got to get the right government in place. It can't be the United whatever they're called, Clive Palmer's. I mean, Clive Palmer's just buying Australia's votes. 
He bought 340,000 votes at the last election. Now, people go, oh, but he, he didn't get a single seat. Well, that doesn't matter. He bought 340,000 votes for $88 million and he gave us Scott Morrison. We need to vote like our life depends on it. We need to vote for representation by independents, by uh, people who represent our community, who are funded and responsible to our communities. And so I love the fact the independents are really, really surging in popularity and prominence. And uh, I truly hope they have the balance of power because the ALP is a lot better than the current federal LNP. But the reality is both of the two party systems are, are somewhat captured by the vested interests. We need donation reform, only independents who um, are funded by the community can drive that. So I'm, I'm hopeful that the federal election can really provide the seeds of change for Australia. Uh, but finance is really important. At the end of the day, um, yeah, talking to your financial institution, telling them that you're unhappy with them continuing to fund the destruction of our planet and telling them if they don't act in alignment with the pledges they've made as companies, as institutions, they've all pledged. Most Australian financial institutions have pledged to 1.5 degrees. Now, we need to hold them to account. Show the actions. Now, the IEA has said a pledge to 1.5 degrees says that there will be no new investment in new oil, gas or coal developments, greenfield developments. It doesn't mean we turn coal off tonight. It doesn't mean we go without power. It doesn't mean we go without cars today. We've got to transform our economy at speed. And that means we've got to start the journey and accelerate the journey really rapidly and have deadlines, have a roadmap, have a trajectory, have an endpoint, and make sure it's not 2050, it's 2040, and to the extent possible, do it by 2030, which is why these 2030 interim targets are so important. We've got an extreme, unprecedented heat wave in India right now. It's only spring, and they're suffering with 48, 49 degree heats. It's just unbelievable. That's unbearable. And that's before summer hits. So Australia has been hit with mega fires, mega floods. Uh, try being in India right now. It's Australia and America and China that created this problem. The vast majority of the historic emissions came from the developed world. We've got to give the developing world time to transform. And we've got to do our fair share. We created, we did a much bigger um, share of the responsibility historically, we've got to actually deal fast to buy them a little bit of time to transform. Now, countries like India, I study India every day, they are embracing this because they're embracing energy security, they're embracing the investment, they're embracing the employment, they're embracing the freedom from fossil fuel imports that decarbonisation brings, and they're doing it because they need a livable planet for their 1.4 billion people. So India is moving at full speed to try and do the right thing for the world. It'll do its more than its fair share of the burden, but it needs countries like Australia to actually honour our word and act responsibly and morally. Finance will do it when they see, see government set the framework because finance will see stranded asset risks are too high and they will just accelerate the transformation. It will happen. It's just got to happen fast enough. Well, I think that's a great place to end it there, Tim. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure to speak with you and I'm sure a lot of 
our listeners and myself included have a lot to to take away from this and to hopefully make a key changes in the upcoming election to our federal government and all those who are overseas to make changes in your government through voting. So thank you very much. Thanks, Xavier. I really appreciate talking with you and uh, certainly don't underestimate the power of the individual. Everyone's got to have that conversation. Um, people your generation need to put pressure on their managers, their peers, their families, and all of us collectively can drive the change and the opportunities for Australia in terms of investment, employment, exports, a livable planet are so obvious. We just should be embracing this and we should just shout out the Every time our federal government talks, we should shout them out, drown them out or vote them out and uh, force the change that's in Australia's best interest. So thanks, Xavier, for your time and your passion. And uh, let's pray the election goes the right way for a <laughs> planet. Will do. Thank you again, Tim. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Xavier. Have a great day.